This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Climco to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Climco for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and a co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that's not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ESG Decoded. This is Amanda Shade. And today, I have the pleasure of talking to James Raste, the founding partner at Coast Capital. James was recently named one of the top hedge fund managers to watch in 2022 by Business Insider. And if he sound, his name sounds familiar, you may have seen James on CNBC or Bloomberg News. Coast Capital is a fund that takes a PE approach to investing in public companies, and we're going to kind of delve into that with James today. And I think this could not be a more timely topic with all the interest in ESG investing nowadays. It's such a big, broad term, and I feel like every week I'm seeing some kind of article in Wall Street Journal or posted on LinkedIn about what it is and what it isn't, and so I'm really excited to be talking to James Raste, who's really a leader in this space. James, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. I'd love for if you could start off and tell just folks a little bit about Coast Capital and, and your approach to investing and your investment theories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Coast Capital is a fund which takes, as you say, a private equity approach to investing in public companies. What we do is we look for and invest in companies that, in our estimation, are leaders in profitable and growing industries. And we invest in these companies when they are dramatically undervalued compared with peers and history and fair value and have events to release value back to investors. So we look for a confluence of three factors, you know, corporate gem, leader in a profitable and growing industry, really low valuations, events to release value back to investors. Being very actively minded in, in I think, all, all facets of my personal and professional life, we often are the event that releases value back to investors. We are activist investors that I think is partly reflective of the fact that prior to starting our own fund, I was at a firm called Jana Partners, which is one of the big activist uh, funds in New York and had uh, a wonderful time working with the founder, Barry, at that firm. But we are part of the event. And the thing that we do that is different from what I have done historically, but that is really an integral part of our process is we have an advisory board that we've been working with, frankly, for over a decade. But we have these advisors who are leading CEOs and operating experts from the industries that we invest in. And when we invest in a company, we identify an advisor who knows that company and that industry intimately well, has an extraordinary track record of creating value in that company or that industry. And these advisors do our operational due diligence for us. And if you think about the fact that we invest in really great companies that have low valuations, the only way that that happens or the only way you find such companies is when they are undermanaged in some way or misallocating capital. But there's usually 
the great you know white world thinks there's some kind of a problem usually with the companies that we invest in and we come in when that problem is being solved and very often with the help of our advisors we actually solve those problems and create value for our investors so it's been I've had the good fortune to work at a number of hedge funds that were seen at best in class and had like the best performance in their respective strategies for a number of years. And, and this process is intellectually super rewarding, super engaging, super fun. And uh, very, very thankfully, even though we don't care about our short-term returns, we really are long-term multi-year investors. I think that, you know, the performance is some of the best that I've been able to create over my career. So that's the cherry on top of the whipped cream on top of the ice cream. That's awesome. How does ESG investing come into play with your approach then? ESG is very personal to me. And as I think about it, I cannot help but think that it should be very personal to any practicant of it, you know, and I think that it isn't. I think that's a big part of the problem. So a number of years ago, I wrote an article. I'm Canadian and the Globe and Mail is sort of our New York Times up in Canada. So I wrote an article. I forget the title, but it was like something like the ESG investment industry is broken. I really felt that most of the practicant and, and the funds that profess to be ESG really are not. And I cannot help but feel that a lot of individuals who market these funds were, you know, forgive me charlatans for lack of a better word because i think that there is such an important responsibility that we as lead investors in publicly quoted companies have to set these companies on the right path in terms of decreasing their environmental impact or improving their community relations or improving their corporate governance. And the fact that the largest ESG fund in 2016, which was Al Gore's Generation Fund, their largest investment was in Facebook, you know, because Facebook doesn't have much carbon emission and therefore it was seen as an ESG play. Like I think, but Facebook has done more to destabilize democracy in the Western world and to bring depression onto teens and to 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 hide its nefarious practices from its in the, the clients and investor base. It's like one of the most wicked companies ever. And to invest in that as an ESG fund, I think is so emblematic of the underlying problems and inconsistencies and I think philosophical shortcomings in the ESG industry. So for me, ESG, you know, kind of starts at home. You know, investing with an ESG focus should only be done by people who actually personally really care, you know, because otherwise it's like starting a restaurant, but the head chef doesn't really like to cook. They just think that it makes sense to build a restaurant. And I think that most of these ESG restaurants, these, these ESG funds, if we were to, you know, compare them to restaurants are led probably by, uh, you know, chefs who don't like to cook. I mean, they're, they're not portfolio managers who, you know, have a track record of doing volunteer work in their communities. They're not on the boards of agencies that, you know, look after uh, environmental well-being in local communities or whatever. They don't do that. It's, it's kind of like a marketing effort. And to me, it seems obvious that it all starts with the manager and it starts with a passion on behalf of the manager to, I hate to sound trite, but to, to improve the world in their own way and to fix mistakes that corporations are making or to erase the deleterious impact of communication of, of, of corporations on their local communities. So for me, it starts with the manager. You know, my parents put me in a school in Canada where, you know, I, I did a program called IB, which I think is like the best program ever for a high school student, better than AP. And as part of that, we had to do volunteer work. 
every week. We had to do two weeks of volunteer work and I hated it and I didn't see the point. No kid wants to do that. But, you know, I started volunteering at hospitals. I started volunteering at, you know, basically going in, cleaning up parks. And after you do that for a couple of years, you understand this is actually really important work and you actually pay attention to, you know, people's welfare and parks being clean and environmental awareness. And I went to a whole bunch of like youth for environmental awareness conferences when I was a teen and really got involved with that. And, and you can't help your wiring. You can help the things that you're interested in. And for me, as it turns out, for reasons that I cannot help, I'm deeply interested in, I am convinced that I can help improve the state of affairs at companies or at governments or whatever. And I feel really compelled to act based on that conviction. I cannot help it. It's who I am. And so for, you know, starting a long number of years ago, when I was at a firm that I won't uh, name, I, I, I started making investments in companies where I felt I could move the needle from an ESG perspective. And I can talk about that in detail and had a meaningful amount of success. And that sort of has encouraged me to go down this path. And I can talk about like sort of how it all started. I would love to hear that. I want to just take a moment really quick, though, and and unpack something before we delve into that. And that's, what does ESG investing mean to you? I think what's interesting is that it's, again, a term that where the example you gave, they're so focused on the E that the S and the G maybe, you know, I don't want to say overlooked, but we're obviously much lower priorities. Does an investment fund need to balance all three or is it okay if it balances uh, over prioritizes some of the criteria let's say the environmental or social over others or is it just or is it mainly about being transparent to the investors so they know what they're getting into how what's your thought about all that I think it's all of the above. I think ESG investing is basically about putting the world on a more sustainable course and and making the world a better place, or at least stopping its continued deterioration or erosion. I think that whether the E or the S or the G need to be emphasized, I think really depends on the specific investments that one makes. And I think that fundamentally for me, that means that proper ESG has to be a micro rather than macro consideration. So I do think that all of these databases with carbon capture and carbon emission or whatever, measuring data that are inconsistent, using inconsistent processes across companies that have different ways of reporting things, uh, just is is a whole bunch of hoopla. And and I'm not sure that for me, that's what's going to make the world a better place. I think that what makes the world a better place is, um, so I think ESG investing is investing towards positive change on Mm -hmm. any of those criteria. And I think that for most corporations, any or all of them have room for important and often dramatic improvement. And I think anybody who proactively works to move the needle is, in my estimation, to be commended and is, you know, winning a fight for humanity. And there are a lot of fights that I think we need to win just now, particularly from an ESG perspective. So that's what it means for me. Thank you very much. I think there's just, yeah, there's just so much confusion. Well, people are trying to make a very complicated matter into simple and bite-sized and one-size solution fits all consideration. And as long as, and it actually defies logic, it clear that clearly should not be path that we go on. And yet that is the path that people want to go on because, you know, they can make money at it. They can sell solutions that are quote unquote scalable and comparable, which of course is no such thing. Or, you know, they can market their fund as an ESG fund without having to really put in a lot of effort studying every company because these companies have low carbon footprint. I mean, you know, again, complete waste of time. But that's but people want to simplify it, make it scalable because simple and scalable means profitable. 
Tell me a little bit about some of the success stories you've had. Yeah. Amanda, you have no idea how many friends I've lost saying these things. And I promised myself I would be muted before talking about it ever again. But I seem to be getting like more worked up about it over time. So for me, it all started with Petrobras. At the beginning of this century, had discovered all of this oil in the Santos Basin off of Brazil. And this was a huge discovery, perhaps uh, yeah, the largest oil discovery of this century, I think, so far, outside of shale oil in, in North America traditional oil biggest discovery of this century and we've done a lot in natural resources and petrobras wanted to take all that oil pump it through a pipeline across the amazon into north america two problems one is pipelines leak the longer they are and the longer they're in operation the more they will leak all over the place you know it's just statistically and crossing the amazon clear cutting a path for an oil pipeline across that part of the world, just environmentally is a big affront, I think, to, to, to humanity. Having been to the Amazon and at the sound of risking sort of like I might, you know, belong on a commune from the 60s, I lived with an Achuar tribe in the Amazon. And I think that until you've been there and you've experienced the Amazon, you cannot understand how important that is to the global ecosystem and to production of oxygen and to the regulation of temperature and winds and et cetera, et cetera, in, in, on, on this planet just now. People just don't understand. So the Amazon really is, from my perspective, the most precious part of this planet. And the idea of a pipeline being rolled out across it was a great affront, I felt, to humanity. So A, it was an environmental disaster, and there were a whole bunch of white papers that had already been compiled um, showing what an environmental disaster it was destined to be. But then on top of that, investors don't care about the environment. You know, it's all about, you know, returns and, and returns this quarter. That's just the sad truth. On top of that, it was never going to earn an economic return. It just was not an economically viable project. But they were going ahead with it anyway, because this was a way for Brazil and the board of that company and that company to become a major player in international energy markets, right? So a much more prestigious kind of gig than the one they were in, which was basically a Brazilian operator. And, and so that's why they were going ahead with it. Well, we basically compiled all the white papers showing that it was going to be A, an environmental disaster, and then B, that it wasn't going to earn an economic return. And the work had already been done for us. If it hadn't, we would have done it ourselves and basically went to the company's larger shareholders and said, look, they're doing this pipeline. A, it's going to cost you a whole bunch of money. It's not going to make returns. B, it's an environmental disaster. Would you consider addressing the board and telling them that you're going to vote against their reelection you know, every year until they're all voted out if they go ahead with this. We cannot tell you what to do. Let's not have an agreement between us on how to vote because we didn't want to form a group. But this is what we think makes sense for both economic and, and environmental reasons. And we and a number of their largest investors basically ended up sending a letter to the board quietly saying, you know, if you do go ahead with this pipeline, we're going to publicly vote and with great voice vote against your reappointment to this board every year until you're all voted out and we're going to publicly talk about what an environmental disaster you are and how badly this board is managed and within two weeks of us sending these letters the board basically the company announced that it would not build that pipeline and that was awesome and i was so thrilled with that decision and you know now i think i can be you know i can produce all the waste that I want because I've earned my keep, you know, from a carbon, <laughs> carbon, carbon footprint perspective. I perversely, you know, started thinking that a little bit, but that was the first thing that we did that, that I was really, really grateful for the outcome of. 
That's an amazing story. I I feel like activist investors kind of get a bad rep, just like lobbyists get a bad rep. <laughs> I mean, you, listen, I don't, I don't hold that? on. No, geez, Amanda, this talk took a much darker turn than I expected. No, I think activist investors fundamentally, it, it, look, if if my peers are wired the way I am, I think we're the kind of people who look at problems and can't help but A, come up with a solution and then B, be like, this solution makes so much sense. I need to be a part of this. I need to make this change happen. And and I think that we are fundamentally agents of change. Now, I think that some activists, you know, the adage that comes to mind is to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know, activist funds are basically financial institutions. And fundamentally, what we do as much as anything else is look for companies that are really undervalued. So for most activists, when you look at an undervalued company, you know, the easiest thing and you're first impulse is, well, let's just put the company up for sale or let's put divisions up for sale or let's get it to do a share buyback. Like it's basically have a financial patch that creates returns, but doesn't address whatever the underlying problems are that got the company to be inexpensive, usually on depressed earnings to begin with. And so activist investors are financial institutions that usually mostly only come up with financial answers to the problems at hand. And I think that's intellectually often pretty lazy, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that we're agents of change. And I think that one of the biggest problems we have in the world and have had for as long as we've been around, I suspect, is just apathy. I mean, you know, I would rather work with an activist investor than another sort of apathetic, you know, not engaged. I have too many companies in my portfolio to particularly care about any one of them, you know, uh, investor. Kind of a debate when it comes to ESG investing about divestment versus engagement. How do you see those tools? I see them as different tools being mm. applicable in different situations. I mean, what do you, how do you think about that? Because there's this, I think, great debate too about if you want to be an ESG fund, you need to avoid or divest of certain things. And we've seen examples of that, right? With maybe yeah. uh, some big university endowments where they put in those investment policies of kind of divestment and it's come under some scrutiny. I don't know. I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, look, I feel like I should preface any answer that I give to please forgive me for the opinions I'm going to share because it's bound to offend someone that I really don't want to offend. But I cannot help but think that divestment is a symptom of intellectual laziness. It really is. It's kind of like so the analogy for me would be and I really do apologize to people who who uh, and, and I'm very happy to be wrong. But this is my opinion. I think that to me, divestment is kind of like a teacher, you know, who runs a class. And in that class, there are 30 students and, you know, 20, 10 of the students are great exemplary, you know, teacher favorites. Yeah, 10 of them are fine, engaged, but not that much and certainly not problematic. And 10 of them are problematic, you know, like uh, put spitballs in their pens and throw it at the nerds up front, which, you know, I was a nerd. So, you know, certainly grew up with a lot of spitballs accumulating in my hair and just generally behave very poorly and make the experience really unpleasant for the rest of the crew. Let's say those are the companies that, you know, from an ESG perspective, you know, would not be performing well and where the board and management team don't really care at all. And you can tell. Oh, yeah. Divestment is tantamount in this scenario to the teacher saying, you know what? 
I'm only going to pay attention to the 20 kids who are doing a good job. And I'm going to completely ignore the 10 kids who, you know, aren't doing well, aren't doing their part and are making the experience miserable for everyone. Well, what that does is it kind of really creates a nefarious environment for all kids involved. And the kid, 10 kids who are not engaged with, they feel emboldened to, to do even worse things, right? So I think that a good teacher would, in that case, probably focus more on the 10 kids who really, you know, need help or need improvement or have some kind of problem probably at home that can be addressed. And if addressed would change them, set their life on a new course and blah, blah, blah. So I think a divestment is kind of like the teacher who says, you know what, you're a bad kid. I don't want to talk to you. And hoping that that kind of changes things for everybody involved. It doesn't. It makes things worse. I think divestment is one of the biggest problems that we have in the ESG space. I think the only reason people think divestment is a sound strategy is because they refuse to really think things through. You know, what happens in a world where every oil company is owned not by active investors like myself, but by passive investors like BlackRock that have a 95% track record of backing everything that management and the board says, okay? A board like that that has no investor on it to police it, all of a sudden, the conscience goes away. You can do the things that you want to do. What are you worried about an investor coming in, publicly naming and shaming you for your nefarious practices? Of course, you're not going to do that. You know, Greenpeace can come in, do whatever they want. You hire a PR firm and you, you can minimize their impact and you can put a whole bunch of misinformation out there and you can neutralize things that way. But when you have an investor in your midst who polices you and who comes in, threatens to organize other investors to hold you accountable for your environmental misdeeds, that I think makes a really big difference. And the fact is, a second reason why I think divestment is the height of folly is we live in a world where people still use hydrocarbon energy, right? I mean, unless you don't, this is this is an this is one of the most important, still the most important industry in the world, actually, if I really think about it, right? And we use metals and minerals and extractive resources, resources that are extractive from this planet. And these are considered dirty, dirty divestment industries by you know, people who pursue a divestment strategy. And the problem again is there's so much room for improvement in terms of environmental impact at these companies that divesting is precisely the wrong thing to do. You gotta double down. You know, imagine an Exxon board that is owned by environmentalists. Okay, now imagine an Exxon board that's owned by people who don't care about the environment. That's kind of where we are now, right? So I think divestment is, uh, I'm not going to use the adjective that comes to mind uh, because I think I've been offensive enough. And again, I apologize for being offensive, but these are strong beliefs that I have. I think divestment just makes no sense to anybody who takes five minutes to actually think about it. I love your candor. And I think it's good that we've had, you know, on this podcast, I think multiple investment my, my marketing colleagues are going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you're going to make new friends too. <laughs> it's just a fact at the end of the day, in my experience, the facts ultimately surface and come, you know, and, and this is exactly, I, I would be willing to bet pretty good money that five years or however many years from now, this would be like stat, standard thought process, you know? They're going to come around when they, 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 they see exactly in five years when they're like, James is right. <laughs> and, and also they're going to be like, James, who? <laughs> and that's just I'm, great. That's just fine. Mm. James, I was wondering if you have any advice for issuing companies when they're of how to approach investor engagements when they have an investor as passionate and 
involved as you, what are some recommendations you have? What would you suggest to them? I think not only for companies, but I think for investors and for all parties involved, I think humility and candor. You know, um, I have strong views. I'm very happy to be proven wrong on any of my views. It doesn't matter if the view is mine or not, but what matters is that my understanding of the world is correct, you know, and that I, I act based on a correct understanding of the world. So if I'm, if I'm incorrect in my understanding or analysis, I want to understand that and I want to learn that. And I think that the best way to do that really quickly is to be really humble. And I really hope that I am humble personally and certainly, certainly intellectually. So I think A, humility goes a very long way. And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems because a lot of these companies, management teams and boards feel that they know their company and their industry much better than any investor does. And I think that the that is the starting assumption. And I think it's a misassumption and it, it's a false assumption in many, many cases. And I think that that is indeed the assumption that is adhered to. It usually erodes the conversation over time, particularly when management and the board are doing things that demonstrably are wrong and that the investor has done a lot of work to prove and that usually leads to confrontation. So I think that humility and intellectual rigor and candor would be the three most important traits to think about when engaging in dialogue with investors in general, but also from investors to companies. This is not a one-sided thing. I also think that there are many instances when activist investors show up and tell a company to do something that absolutely is not in the company's best interest. You know, and I think that, so I certainly don't think that activists always have the upper hand. You know, I won't name the, there's a there's an activist investor who's very well known in our in a part of the world that we really focus on, which is Europe, which, and I won't say who they are and what the company was, but a number of years ago, just ahead of a material and pretty evident slowdown in the economy and in the underlying market that a company was, was operating in, they went to a company that had a lot of cash saved up, waiting for a downturn so they could consolidate the market. They were like, you need to do a share buyback with that cash. And and that share buyback would have led to a 10% pop in the share price, which is what the activist wanted, but it would have deprived the company from a not generational, but once every decade or two decade opportunity to consolidate the market at attractive prices. So it would have been a mildly compelling thing to do short term, but it would have come at a very, very big opportunity cost in the medium and long term. And the company ultimately refused to do it. And I felt really compelled to publicly speak out in the company's favor because I think that activists like this who are short-termists really give all of us a pretty bad reputation. We make really long-term investments in the companies we invest in. And by the way, in most of or nearly all of our companies, we see eye to eye with management teams and the boards. And so just because we're activists doesn't mean that our exchanges aren't really positive and fruitful and super respectful. I think you just brought up something else of this idea of what are, what are the timelines that different stakeholders have in mind, and yeah. it really can influence what they're pushing for, right? If it's a very short-term timeline they're thinking about versus a, a long-term investor like yourselves, it can result in very different suggestions or approaches to to the business to get that, that quick return, or is there an opportunity that requires patience? Yeah. 
Yeah, Amanda, I really think that's another really big topic that we don't spend nearly enough time talking about. I've been doing this since the mid-90s, and I remember when I first started investing in Europe in the mid-90s, you would get two results per annum. You would get like half-year results, and then you would get full-year results, and the half-year results were just basically like revenues. It wasn't a full P&L. And, you had a, and so there was that process naturally invited a much longer-term view of the company and its prospects, and you didn't feel like you had to react to quarterly results results. And then the the tech bubble of 99-2000 really, really screwed up the world, I think, of investing because what you saw companies do is they wanted to report as quickly as possible the revenue growth because everybody was being rewarded these outrageous multiples on revenue growth. And of course, they were growing because the internet was in its nascency. And so you started to see companies around the world report quarterly results. And all of a sudden, you started to see a lot more trading around and now we're in a world where people just trade they don't even invest like you go on twitter people don't even pretend to be investors they're like ah you know the, the trading is so difficult in these markets well the markets weren't meant to be traded in they're meant for investors and i think that our short term the the the, the collapse of our of the time frame that we keep in mind for our investments from a yearly one to a quarterly one i think has had unbelievably disastrous consequences on companies and their ability to commit to long-term projects and i think on us as human beings as well i just i just and it's a topic people don't think about and i would love it if we move to a world where companies reported results every year because then we would be investing not trading and i think trading is not fundamentally a useful human activity it doesn't really add much to the world one question and- kind of connected with that that i have for you is we're talking about, you know, publicly reporting uh, financial results, right? And currently in the world of sustainability, ESG reporting is typically done on an annual basis. Sometimes you'll get a little tidbit here and there, you know, but it's not mandatory. It's not regulated, at least in the U.S., you know. Yeah. But there's also complaints from investors just overall that they're not make, maybe I shouldn't say complaints, but demands for greater transparency and more information and more accurate information, higher quality data. Yeah. Do you feel the same way around environmental or safety or diversity or you know other ESG metrics as the same? Is annual reporting, if it's high quality, done accurately, is that sufficient? Or should companies also think about if they really are embracing ESG and have embedded it, should they consider reporting more frequently than once a year? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, but but I'm not sure that again. I, I the voice inside my head says, "Don't say this." But <laughs> okay, I think, think <laughs> but that poor voice never has its way. You know, I really, <laughs> I really, I really think that I think that all of that data at the end of the day for me is of is of pretty limited value. I think that issues around diversity. I think I think that there are, it depends on the topic at hand. I think that around diversity yes you know it would be very useful to because there really has been um discrimination against this topic i I feel really strongly about women for example like when i went to high school and university the smartest kids in class were always the girls always why they develop earlier they seem more emotionally mature than we are and then we men have over centuries created this whole narrative that actually we're the emotionally stable ones and women are not i really do think it's the other way around like this my experience again i'm going to lose a lot of friends over this but they're not going to tell me why but but i know that that's coming 
And so the fact that women have not been equal participants in the workforce, I think, A, reflects some biological truths. I mean, at the end of the day, if you take time out to raise your kids, which is probably the most worthwhile thing one can do with their lives at a time when every at, at the most crucial or formative period in your career, that I think is a big chunk of the reason why women haven't advanced as much. And then that leads us to look at, well, what about Scandinavia where men take father's leave, you know, to take care of their kids? And that seems to have worked out very well. And that's one of the most cohesive and functional and successful societies that humanity has come up with so far. I think that it really depends on the topic and data points are, are particularly important for certain topics versus others. On the issue of diversity, though, another view I would have, which again is going to lose me, whoever has I haven't lost already on this call, is does it make sense to hire people just because of the color of their skin or their you know um, sexual orientation or their gender if they're not the most competent person for the job at hand? And how great is it to impose such a view on companies who have a candidate that's really great for the job, but they're like, yeah, sorry, you're just not the right color. Isn't that a form of racism itself? So uh, yeah, these are some really complicated questions. I think that ultimately, you know, I think for me, common sense should rule the day, but there's someone pretty quotable whose name I forget, who said there's nothing so rare as common sense. So I, I think it really depends on the data, but I think that the data obfuscates and hides the bigger point, which is any investor who actually really cares about having an impact looks at and hires experts who know an underlying company and its operations really well with a view to understand where is this company, where does this company have the greatest room for development and for improvement and why and how do we do that? You know, is it a company that really has diversity issues? Is it a company that, you know, is an industrial operator that could be adopting much more environmentally benign production practices, but it isn't because they're new and maybe unproven a little bit and there's reluctance to adopt these things. So I think that at the end of the day, I think that focusing on specific, you know, a war isn't one win one battle. A war is won many little battles and many little places all around the world. And I think that ESG is kind of like a war. And I think that we as investors have a lot of little battles to win. You know, can I make this gold mining company, you know, treat the local indigenous population a little bit better, which by the way means that there would be fewer interruptions of their operations going forward. So a lot of times ESG has positive economic benefits as well. Or could I get this company which makes diapers, you know, which are a terribly difficult thing to recycle, can I make them use, you know, organic material and organic plastics, which would be a miracle? Or can I get, you know, and so there's a number of little things like that that one can and should focus on, I think, that would actually actually really move the needle if we all did it in our own little way. The greatest changes and the greatest advances are made little by little all around the world and in conjunction. And so let's each of us pick our own little battle and win it rather than passively invest based on data that ultimately, you know, it reminds me of the Shakespeare quote, you know, tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I think that all of this data and, the, and this data set is better than that. It's more reliable. And ultimately, does it really improve the world? Not at all. I don't think. James, it's been wonderful talking with you. And I so appreciate your sharing your opinions and your candor about your your ideas. If you've made some friends, new friends from this podcast, how can they connect with you? Well, you and I both know that that's not happened unless there's like Greenpeace listeners you know, shout out. I'm a fan. And I know that's, again, that's going to lose like the one person who I hadn't lost yet. 
you know, but we, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and those are, those are good places to reach us. I have two partners who are incomparably more thoughtful and intelligent and, and, uh, and great. And they're both on, 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 on LinkedIn as well. So we're, we're delighted to, to engage. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Climco across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and the planet.